Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Our next guest is a quadruple threat. He's a musician, an associate professor and director of anti-racism research at Temple University, an author, and a civil rights lawyer. He received his bachelor's degree from Morehouse College and his JD degree from Villanova University. As a musician, he shared the stage with the likes of Janelle Monet, Jadina, Chill Moody, EPMD, Dead Prez, Canton Jones, Fanatic, Immortal Technique, Jaziri X, and more. He's produced three studio albums and counting. As a professor, he's lectured and presented at conferences at Magdalen College of Oxford University, Villanova University, Temple University, University of California, Northridge, Widener University, Philadelphia University, and more. He teaches a class called Hip Hop and Black Culture, where he's invited some of our favorite musicians to speak to his students, such as Lecrae, Sky Zoo, Wyclef, and local artists. His work has been featured in BBC Radio, ABC, CBS, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Tribune, NPR, the International Business Times, Revolt, and more. Let's welcome today, Mr. Timothy Welbeck to the program. Welcome to the program, Mr. Welbeck. How you doing today, man? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that introduction, G. I might have to take you on the road with me when I <laughs> start going through. <laughs> I appreciate that introduction. It is well deserved, man. Um, you have you. just a, a huge body of work, and it all encompasses, you know, working for Black folks and, uh, you know, doing, doing, doing the work, man. That we all need all right, done. You. you know, you're doing it in all avenues, man. So kudos to you for finding a way to get that done as a professor, as a musician, um, and then as a lawyer, man, that's, that's, that's three different lives, lives right there that you live in, man. So definitely appreciate that, man. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to sit down with you tonight. I think looking forward to a great conversation. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Likewise, man. Uh, before we get uh, started, man, we got to definitely do hip hop justice, man. Yeah. I know you've been teaching, you know, the, the class at Temple for a while. And uh, in your lectures, you mentioned kind of like the beginning of hip hop and how mm -hmm. it all got started. I know you yes. talk about, yeah, DJ Cool Herc and all that. But mm -hmm. before we even get into that story, can we talk about like the connections of hip hop? Because oftentimes we think hip hop is a new thing that it just mm -hmm. came about, you know, in the uh, in the 70s and whatnot. But like you mentioned before, there is a huge link to African culture and mm -hmm. African rhythms and beats and um, mm -hmm. everything. So can you can you talk about that? And then can you get into? Yeah, so I like to started? say, absolutely. So I like to say that hip hop didn't fall out the sky 49 years ago. The <laughs> hip hop has ancestors the same way that you and I do. It has ancestors and it has relatives. So it's a part of a family tree of things that I call African derived aesthetics. And effectively, what I'm getting at is that West Africans have traditional ways of making music that go back millennia. And so one of the things that happened during the transatlantic slave trade is these people began to quickly discover that even though we may speak different language, languages, may pray to different gods, we might live in di under different governance structures and things like that. While we may see ourselves as different, there are distinct similarities in the music making, things like tonal language, communicating meaning with tonality and pitch, 
improvisation, creating lyrics or text or melody without prior rehearsal, a heightened rhythm and polyrhythms, um, collective participation, the performer performs for, I mean, with the audience rather than for the audience, antiphony, which is an SAT word for call and response. All of those things were factors in the way that West Africans have been making music literally for thousands of years. And so as these people began to come to the Western world and began to encounter the musical traditions and, and the musical stylings of Europeans and people who are indigenous to this area, they began to forge something unique. And so one of the first iterations of that, I guess, fusion is what we call spirituals. And so enslaved Africans are taking psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of Europe, and they're incorporating their unique cultural elements to them. And they're making something that was almost entirely unrecognizable to their European captors. Um, John Salzman wrote the Encyclopedia of African-American History and Culture. He talks about that in his music chapter. And he goes on and even gives some firsthand accounts of some of these captors and what they're talking about and how they're like, these people are singing, the words are similar, but we don't recognize the shrieks and the sounds and things like that. And so and spirituals become the foremother of all music in America, um, particularly Black music in America, but Black music pretty much creates all forms of music that we look at today in the Americas. And so from spirituals, we get like this long family tree. So we get things like blues and ragtime, jazz, gospel, soul, um, reggae, disco, on down until what we ultimately see with hip-hop. And so hip-hop shares features with all of these other genres. And, and, and they do that because they share DNA. So I say all of that to say that while hip-hop is separate and distinct and at times unique from other genres, it definitely has this familial connection. And that's why um, hip-hop, I argue, has even been around for so long. There, uh, there have been other genres and cultural expressions that have kind of come and gone and waned in popularity, but hip hop has stayed around for so long in part because it has the ability to pull from these other things. Like jazz has like unique genre lines. You can experiment within jazz, but like there are boundaries. The blues the same way, gospel the same way, but hip hop, it pulls from all of these things. It pulls from jazz, it pulls from blues, it pulls from gospel, it pulls from disco pulls from R&B. Sometimes it, it melds together with R&B to the point that they're almost indistinguishable. So I said all that to say hip hop didn't fall out the sky. So like it's um, so I, I tell my students first day of class that, you know, the average historian will tell you that hip hop began in New York. Somebody with a little more knowledge might say it began in the Bronx. And then somebody who's more precise may say it started in the South Bronx. And if they're really feeling themselves, they may say it started on August 11th, 1973 at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue at a back to school jam put on by Cool Herc and his sister Cindy. And all of that is true. But when Cindy and Cool Herc got together that night, they were unintentionally pulling together various forms of rich cultural traditions that Africans across the diaspora had maintained for centuries. Right, man, that is uh, so interesting. Um... Because like when we look at hip hop, like as a response to kind of oppression mm -hmm. and a way of, um, you know, expressing ourselves, it's kind of mm -hmm. the same thing with the spirituals and, you know, the origin of the music. So, man, that, that is really interesting. So and we talk about that in class, too. Like, um, 
we, we talk about um, how the enslaved Africans creating spirituals was a way in which to not only better bond with each other, but also maintain a, a portion of their humanity. It was, it was, it was, it was one of the things that reminded them of who they were before the period of enslavement, because they were removed from every physical manifestation of who they were. They were removed from their homes, their names were taken, their, their clothing was taken, the physical artifacts of culture were taken. And so the music is one of the things that they held dear. The blues is the same way. The blues emerges post reconstruction in one of the most violent eras of history for black people in America. And that's why the blues is sad and sounds melancholy. You had some people saw the end of slavery, got a modicum of freedom with reconstruction. All of that is taken away. And now they're in a system that looks strikingly similar to slavery all within a period of 15 to 20 years. And so the music that comes from that sounds sad. And similarly with hip hop, it's coming out of the deindustrialized Bronx. And so like Jeff Chang and others have commented on the level of poverty and, and other ills that were facing the Bronx at the time made it almost like a wasteland. And people were looking at it like this forgotten place. And out of there, these children come together and created something entirely new and create a new culture that created a, a corresponding music that we all know and love. And it's part of the reason why we're talking tonight. Yeah, that is amazing, man, um, to just have such a beautiful thing come out of, you know, just raw experience. Yes. Life, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. but so, some might say it started off as a beautiful thing and now it's not so beautiful. So um, mm -hmm. for some, you know, some that that I guess don't have a wide range of what hip hop is. But uh, when we look at, you know, hip hop, where it came from to like the don't push me because I'm close <laughs> to, the, you know, the edge, you know, that kind of, <laughs> you know, that kind of flow mm -hmm. with the uh, the the um, the public enemies. Mm -hmm. DJ Cool Herks, um, you know, those type of folks that started and there was the DJing, there was the breakdancing, there was the graffiti, there was all of those things. And if we just press the fast forward button, um, we got other, you know, type of styles that that evolved. Uh, one was gangster rap. And a lot mm -hmm. of folks look at uh, the group NWA as kind of the ones that are responsible for like the descent of hip hop from where it was to you know, motivating us, encouraging us, teaching us, uplifting us to making, you know, being a gangster cool, like the drug selling and all the stuff cool and the way that they were talking to, about women and all this kind of thing. So is it groups like NWA um, and gangster raps fault for the descent of where hip hop has gone? Or Ice Cube mentioned that the group was just talking about some of the things that was going on in their community, like the police violence and you know, growing up in the hood and things of that sort. So are they to blame for, you know, their experience and just speaking that experience? Or are we talking about the record industries that are promoting these, only these artists, and this is the only sound that we want out and that we want to, to be mainstream. So is it the record company's fault for the descent? Is it the artist um, for, you know, not having, you know, personal responsibility to, to be able to, you know, to, to censor some of these things? Or is it the folks that are uh, consuming this? Like, is it us that's buying the music, yeah. nodding our heads and jamming, you know, to 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 the gangster rap and to the music that kind of dissented hip hop? Is is it is it you know us? Is it the record industry? Is it the artists? Who do you think is responsible for that dissent um, to where kind of we are now with 
with hip hop. A lot of folks are saying hip hop is dead. There's mumble rap. You know, I think there's a lot more to it. You know, the the real hip hop, like your music, and a okay. lot of other artists are not as mainstream. You know, because it's not being pushed out there. Um, but as far as the mainstream hip, mainstream hip hop, what do you think um, caused all of this to to kind of downgrade? That's a great question. Uh, so I'll begin by saying that we live in a different era now than we ever have before. So if we want certain types of music, it's we have better access to it than we ever did before. So just by way of example, when I first started listening to rap music, you had to either listen to the radio, maybe come home and catch something on, on video, or like go to the store and buy a physical copy of something. Like now I can pick up my phone and listen to almost anything that's ever been released for public consumption. And so I say that to say that there are people who are making the type of music that is often decried as being devoid or are lacking in the culture right now. But to answer your question, I think you nailed it in that part of the responsibility is on the artists who create destructive content. Part of it is on these labels that are only endorsing certain types of content and part of it is on the consumers. And so I think there is blame to be laid at the feet of everyone, but I guess in terms of history, so kind of as you were insinuating, there was a period in time within what we call the mainstream iterations of hip hop culture and specifically the music whereby you couldn't, you couldn't degrade women, you couldn't really use a lot of profanity, you couldn't gratuitously use the N-word and expect to be respected. It just wasn't happening. And, but things began to slowly shift. Um, so people generally say Schooly D's PSK was kind of like the canary in the coal mine. It was the first, um, I guess, warning or threat that things were beginning to change and shift. Um, if you've heard PSK, it's like real like, um, in terms of like today's content, it's very tame. <laughs> I mean, like he talks about patronizing a sex worker and smoking weed. And I think he talks about beating somebody up. But like in the first eight bars of some music, you might get a much more explicit iteration of things now. Mm. Um, but so that's 1985. 1986, Too Short released one of his most explicit albums ever. Um, it didn't get anywhere near the traction as some of his later work did, but it kind of laid <laughs> groundwork. Uh -huh. Or like, you know, things are changing, like just um, the use of profanity, degrading women, talking about um, being promiscuous, calling women bees and hoes, all of that, like songs that you can't say the titles of and mixed company, like, that's just, <laughs> you know, that's 1986, 1987, Ice-T releases six in the morning and he's talking about um, the police at his door and he's selling crack and trying to flush the crack down the toilet before the police come through the door and then jump out the window. 1988, then we get N.W.A. straight out of Compton. And if you ask Ice Cube or heard Easy E when he was alive or even Dr. Dre, they said exactly what you say. We what you said before, they'll say that we're just the reporters reporting what's happening in our mm -hmm. neighborhoods. There was some truth to that to, to some degree. Um, like their infamous song about the police, if you actually get past the chorus and listen to Ice Cube's first verse, he's talking like about the experiences of Black and Brown people in Compton who are accosted by the police, who are um, racially profiled, who are routinely beat up and harassed and things like that. So there was real talk about what was happening in people's lives, but there were also embellishments too. 
And there's also like um, skirting up against boundaries and pushing the envelope, so to speak. And when they were able to succeed at the level that they were without significant corporate backing, with, with a mainstream effort to try to censor them, there became an effort to try to replicate what they were doing because it's like, wait a minute, they're not on the radio like other acts. They're not on TV like other acts. There are politicians who are having entire publicity campaigns to try to censor them. And they're basically going platinum out of their trunk. Mm -hmm. And that coincided with a history of corporations beginning to more seamlessly enter into hip hop, more labels are involved and things like that. About six months later, Two Live Crew release as nasty as they want to be. Uh, <laughs> I want to say I never heard that album, but I listened to a uh, previous interview that you did. And I'm like, you know what? Let me, because you mentioned your mom was like, yo, you are nice. Yes. <laughs> so I'm well, like, let me listen homework. to this. <laughs> so I've heard one of their songs, um, yeah. one of the popular songs, but I'm like, I never heard the album before. Yeah, me so horny probably to, what you heard. Yeah, I listened to the album and I was like, yo, even right now, like, did, like even right now if you play that right now people will be like yo what is this like what in the world <laughs> like um if i agree with your mom a thousand percent because before i'm like why would your mom not want you to oh okay <laughs> like, <laughs> and like yeah. to my mom i'm probably like this was 89 so i was seven back then too so even more so um, it makes sense that she was that she she had aversions to it. But I said all of that to say we can't play place all the blame at the feet of N.W.A. because things were already mm-hmm. trending that way to some degree. Right. But N.W.A. really kicked the door open in terms mm-hmm. of pushing boundaries, particularly with the use of language like the N word is in the name of their group, and um, so like and they're using the word more gratuitously than you're seeing in the music at the time the way that they were disparaging women in some of their content, some of the violence that they hinted at at times, that really set the groundwork for a lot of what came after it. So much so that as labels began to get involved in the, in, in the music part of things, they're just looking for a return on investment. Mm-hmm. And that's working to the point that it's like, if that's working, let's do that. And so labels began encouraging people to make music like that. But then again, as you were mentioning, and this is something I tell my students often too, if the consumer doesn't buy into it, then it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so now granted these things are marketed to them and right. you're kind of inundated with things, inundated with images and the like, and, and corporations understand what, what that means for influencing patterns and behaviors. But we live in a capitalistic society. And if consumers say, I don't want this product, but enough of them do that, we will see changes in how the pro- either what the product is or how the product is delivered. I mean, a great example of that is McDonald's, right? So like, I still don't eat McDonald's, but think about how McDonald's has changed its menu from the time that we were children to now. Mm. So like the Super Size Me documentary and people yeah. becoming more health conscious and, think, mm-hmm. and people are saying, you know what, I probably shouldn't be eating that. So what McDonald's did, they they reduced the size of some of their portions. They started giving you options now. So if you don't want French fries with your with your Happy Meal, you can have you can have a parfait or you can have apples, and and other little things like that. And or even Burger King, they now have vegan burgers. They have an Impossible Burger. Right, That's right. all about consumer demand. When I was in high school, when I was in middle school, and even a smaller child, 
the idea of a, a vegan burger at Burger King was laughable. Like, what you mean? Like, you don't go to Burger <laughs> King for that. You go to Burger King to get that Whopper. You want that beef. So I say that to say, I think you hit it on the head with your question that we can and should lay blame at the feet of all of these people. To the extent that artists are making destructive content that we got issues with, we need to hold them accountable and tell them we don't like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. To the extent the corporations are behind them and facilitating that process, we need to hold them accountable too. And then we also have to look in the mirror and say like, what am I listening to? What am I encouraging? What types of voices am I amplifying? Who am I, who am I giving a platform to? Absolutely, man. And uh, shout out to your mom for like looking at what you were listening to. Cause I think a lot of parents do not do that. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of parents just are not aware of like the influences that mm -hmm. their children have like around them. Um, yeah. But I think it's a great thing to, to look at what your kids are listening to and yes. to kind of censor it as, as parents, because as kids, we don't know any better. Like, you know, you're listening to what everybody else in school is listening to and you're like, you know, mm -hmm. so whatever is, is, is popular is what's going to be like, you know, on your, on your iPod, on your phone or whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we need parents like your mom checking in and seeing like, yeah. you know, what, what is, you know, what is on your playlist right now? Like, nah, you ain't, you ain't yeah. listening to that. So yeah, I think that's my mom. Yeah. <laughs> that's another part yeah you you might have been a completely different rapper had it, had it been. i mean it's, it's very possible and just for the listeners who may not have heard the story so my i, I tell people my parents introduction to rap music was through two live crew around mm -hmm. the time that their album nasty as they want to be was becoming a hit my mom i heard a co-worker i'm talking about the album because at this juncture it was in federal court and what happened, um, the state of Florida was trying to ban the sale, promotion, and public display of the album and some of the songs. And so Luke sued the attorney general of Florida, basically saying, I have a constitutional right to be nasty as I want to be. So they ended up in federal court. And around that time, my mom asked a co-worker, is the music really that bad? And so the co-worker's like, you can listen for yourself. And she brought a cassette to work the next day. And my mom listened to it on her work break. And she came home and told my dad, if this is what hip hop is, Timothy and Catherine, Catherine's my little sister. Um, she, she said, Timothy and Catherine can't listen to this. And so I remember hearing her tell him that. And so that was their introduction. And so for years, I, I was only listening to the music that they were listening to. So like, I was listening to gospel music, both old and new. I was listening to like Otis Redding, Booker T and the MGs, James Brown. Um, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, things like that. Yeah, that that again, um, kudos to your mom, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so just getting into your, you know, your own story, you know, outside yeah. of the hip hop story. Um, I know in your music you talk a lot about, you know, your parents and um mm -hmm. their upbringing. So I kind of wanted to ask about, you know, what your your history was and what led okay. you to kind of where you are now. So uh, we can start it off with, you know, your parents. I know your, your dad um, was uh, Nigerian born and you have that background. So you can, can you touch up on, um, you know, some of your earlier influences and uh, growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So you're very close. My dad's from Ghana, um, born and raised. Um, Ghana, Ghana, my bad, my bad. Quite <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so he immigrated to the United States in his early 20s. Uh, his hope was to get an education and then go back and help build up some of the infrastructure of Ghana. Um, and life sometimes has a way of intervening in our plans. And so um, he met my mom, they fell in love, got married and ended up um, planting roots in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where my mom is from. So 
my mom is from Memphis, Tennessee, um, born and raised. And they, uh, I like to say, they gave me a, an incredible childhood. I was actually just telling them recently, just in that I, I'm really fortunate and that I had great attentive parents who were loving and who did the best they could with what they had. And so I grew up a stereotypical middle-class life for that period of time. Uh, my parents, my mother worked for, my, my mother and my father worked for Holiday Inn uh, when I was a small child. My mother worked in the corporate office as a scheduler. And so like when major acts and, and corporations and things like that were trying to book facilities and things like that, my mom would facilitate that process. And my dad was working in the corporate side um, with franchising and things like that. So when people wanted to build Holiday Inns across the country, he was doing that. And so when I was nine, Holiday Inn moved their corporate office to Atlanta. And they basically told anyone working there, their headquarters was at the time in Memphis. And so they then told people that you have a choice. You can move to Atlanta and we'll give you a small amount of money to help facilitate that process, or you will not have a job anymore. And so my mom decided, you know, it was worthwhile to leave the only home that she had ever known. And so she compared it to Abram in the Bible, um, when God told him to um, get up from your father's house and your father's kindred and go to a land that I will show you. And so she felt very similar to, to, to Abram in that moment, in that this was a step of faith and God would take care of us. And my dad had already made a monumental move like that before. He'd moved across the ocean in, in pursuit of a better life. And so we moved to Atlanta. Well, we actually did not move to Atlanta. We moved to a suburb right outside of Atlanta. And this is actually a, a foundational, I think, aspect of my story, too, in that when my parents decided to move from Memphis to Atlanta, they encounter uh, housing segregation, didn't even realize it at the time. So mm. what they would do is on the weekends, I would stay with my cousins. My sister and I would stay with my cousins and then they would go and house hunt in Atlanta. And so they did that a few times. And the first real estate agent was doing what we now call steering. She was only taking them to black neighborhoods. And she was thinking that one, they couldn't afford to live in white neighborhoods and two, just wanted to help foster um, homogeneous neighborhoods by sending black people to black neighborhoods and the like. And so my mom noticed that one time and she said, you know, I haven't seen any white people at all in, <laughs> in Atlanta. So what's going on with that? And so um, they ended up firing, firing that real estate agent and got another one. And so that next real estate agent asked my parents, where do you want to live? And my mother said, I don't really know Atlanta like that, but I want to live where the best school district is. Because my mother had the presence of mind to know that we can't afford to send my children to private school. So we need to send them to the best available public school. Mm. And so they gave my parents two options. They were like, you know, there's this up and coming area called Alpharetta who's got some of the best schools in the state. And then there's some neighboring schools that's a little older. And my parents were like, you know, let's, let's try this new up and coming place. They've got on paper the best schools in the state right now. They're K through 12. And so let's try that. And so that's where I grew up. I spent the bulk of my formative years in Alpharetta, Georgia, from the time I was nine until I went to college at 18. And so from there, I went to Morehouse College. And um, that for me was, again, another transformative foundational set of experiences there. <laughs> Loved my time at dear old Morehouse. Um, spent four years there, made some lifelong friends, and really found my voice as 
an artist and activist and educator um, during that period of time. And then from there, um, went on, um, stayed in the Atlanta area working for an educational nonprofit for two years. And then I came up north to Philadelphia thinking I'd only be here for three years for law school and I functionally have been here ever since. So like that's <laughs> the Cliff Notes version of earlier parts of my life. Got it, got it. Um, so uh, along with that, you have, you know, your music and you kind of mm -hmm. beginning that process. So what was that beginning process like? Because I know you went from like playing Beethoven to, you know, doing <laughs> hip hop. So <laughs> I did it. Yeah, so that's good. So like my, so the, the whole Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, all of that came from, so that's funny. So my mom wanted me to play an instrument. And so the school district that we moved into had a great music program. It was actually one of the best music programs in the state. And it was free. And to the point that you, if, um, if you didn't have the ability to pay for an instrument, they'd even give you an instrument. And so my mom came to me one day and said, what do you want to play? And so I said, oh, I want to play the saxophone. And then she says, all little black boys play the saxophone. What else do you want to play? And then I said, okay, uh, I want to play the drums. And she's like, well, the drums make too much noise. We're not going to do that right now. And then she says, what else do you want to play? And I said, well, I'd love to play the trumpet. And then she said, then your jaws will look like Dizzy Gillespie. And I, so after that, I thought, mama, what do you want me to play? <laughs> and she said, you know, I would love for you to play the violin. You never see little black boys play the violin. And so... Mm -hmm. So from the time I was in fourth grade until eighth grade, I played the violin. And so, and during this time, like I'm still not listening to music that's current. And so the summer, the summer right before I started eighth grade, my cousins came to visit me for about, about a week in the summertime. And they came, their trip coincided like with like my last two days of school or something like that. So I'm in school one day and I come home and my cousin's listening to the hip hop station. I'm like, what is this? And she's like, oh, this is like, I think, I think it was like B103 is one of hip hop, um, Atlanta's big hip hop stations at the time. And I, and I said, oh, I'd never heard the station before. And so like, I, it, it was like something out of a movie. I was enthralled just almost immediately. And then like that night she found BET. And so like, I'm watching all these videos. <laughs> like I've never seen these, like, I don't know, up from down, left from right. I don't know the difference between most deaf and mob deep. Like, I don't know anything. And so like, I'm like watching all these things in real time and falling in love with the culture. And then about a year later, I met a good friend of mine. We're still friends to this day, Whitney Vaughn. And um, we were hanging out one day and he said, so we we're hanging out one day and we went to the mall. I'll show you how long ago this was. We go to a Tower Records mm -hmm. and bought a single for something that was popular on the radio at the time. You come home and singles back then, they'd have the radio edit, they'd have the explicit mm -hmm. version, they'd have the acapella, and then they'd have yeah. the instrumental. Uh -huh. And so when we got to the instrumental, he's like, let's freestyle. And I had never freestyled before. I've only been listening to rap music maybe a year, year and a half at most. And so I, I threw together a clumsy freestyle. He's like, I really like that. Let's, let's make a group. And so I started rapping. It just basically never stopped. And so, so like, so me and Whitney, we started that group. And what we did, like, we were old school. So like we had a notepad. And so we write our lyrics out in a notepad and we had a shared notepad. And what we would do, like during like the, the, the school week, like Monday through Friday, 
one of us would keep it. And then on the weekend, on Friday, we'd give it to the other person and that person would have it over the weekend and they'd write over the weekend. And then on Monday, we would switch. So whoever had it over the weekend would now get it through the week. And, and then that Friday, they would give it to the other person. So we did that for a little while. Um, and then Whitney basically, like, he stopped rapping. And then, like, he, I, his brother was in a group with us, too. His brother stopped rapping, but I just I kept going. And so, I mean, there have always been periods where I've kind of come back and reevaluated. Should I keep doing this? Should I do something else? But I've pretty much been doing it ever since. Mm. Did you start off like writing like consciously, like the way you write now, or was it like playing around, like you know, kind of thing, like childish, like, or was it? Did you have that consciousness starting? That's off? a great question. Um, so early on, I was just so I was putting together terrible lyrics about how good I was. <laughs> <laughs> so like my earliest raps were like really bad, like raps about like I'm better than you, and it was like. Yeah, like not worth listening to, but it was a lot of that type of stuff. And then, um, so like, I, I, I'm very serious about my faith. And I I was convicted about like just using certain language or like imitating certain trends or just bragging about myself when I could be doing something more substantive with my music. And so the shift for me began probably around the time I'm maybe 16 or so in that range I said you know what I'm, I can say something of, of of merit with my lyrics and so that's that's when I started that's that's when I started like I guess for lack of a better term started being more conscious and then to be perfectly honest by the time I got to high school what would happen is like like in between lunch periods sometimes some of the guys will like make a little cipher and it was two guys, they were twins and they were the best freestylers I had ever seen before in my life. And like, it was them, their best friend and like one other guy. And they would just go and be, go back and forth until like someone stopped them and made them go to class. And my goal at first was just to be good enough to get in the cypher. Mm. And so, and then once, so I, I jump in the cypher one day and they're like, oh, Tim, that was pretty good. And like once that happened, I was like, OK, I've made it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm good. And then um, and then it was around that time, like, I guess I had met that criteria for myself where I began saying, you know what, now that you've kind of proven to yourself that you can put these words together oh, uh, and OK, like, can you say something? And then I got to college my freshman year and then I met some close friends of mine. They were in a rap group called The Remnant. and I went on this retreat for the service organization I was a part of, and one of the group members was there. We had a cipher, and he would like the rapping he was doing blew anything I had written out of the water. And like I was just, I was amazed first that someone, any um, someone who like I looked at as a peer could rap so well. I was like, what is happening right now? Like I thought I was good. And then, um, and then also like he was, he, uh, he was Christian too. And I was just like, man, like you, not only like are you rapping really well, but like you're talking about your faith in a way I'd never had encountered. Like, I didn't know anything about Christian rap. I didn't know like it was a thing and like it was a whole subgenre with like groups and labels and a whole scene. I didn't know any of that. And so, um, so for me, like those experiences really helped begin to shape how I began approaching um, my rapping at, a at the time and then um, the longer I was at Morehouse, I just had more opportunities to like do open mics and do shows uh, at times, share the stage with people. 
and um I just and then start even trying to, to incorporate some of the things I was learning in class and things like that mm. and speaking of that man like just you you know rapping and doing your thing any in any type of setting you know whether it be on the stage with some of the greats that we mentioned in the intro or with your class or you know performing on your own um did you establish any type of routines or any type of things that you did to kind of be comfortable in those type of settings that is a great question and i wish i was that organized but i didn't um <laughs> <laughs> i mean for me so like in terms of songwriting no two songs come about the same way but like i'm very concept driven so in terms of writing i'll get an idea first and then from there i'll flesh out the idea sometimes the idea requires me to sit down and like do some reading so like i have a song called the sweeter tune of freedom on it's the it's the last song on no city for young men and in the first verse i'm i, I take on the role of a black panther in the second verse, I take on the role of a Jewish boy in the Holocaust. In the third verse, I take on the role of a, of a runaway slave. And so for that song, for example, I went for the, for the Black Panther, I went and read Malcolm X speeches. I read Huey Newton speeches because I really wanted to capture what people were saying in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then in the second verse, I went and reread Ellie Wiesel's Night. Um, and it's like a firsthand account of being in a concentration camp. Right. And then for the last verse, I went and read slave narratives. And so, so I said that to say, like, so sometimes I'll do that. Or sometimes, um, it's sometimes, like, I will, like, put on the, uh, now, what I consistently do is, like, I will write to a beat. Um, and so, like, I'll do that. But I don't, I didn't, I didn't develop a lot of, like, routines and regimens, like, I, like, I wish I had. But one thing that I have consistently maintained, even from that period, is by the time I go to the studio, I'm generally ready. Um, so like, I'm not the type to write in the studio or like fumble through verses or like even compose in the studio, like like mumble a few lines and then go to the next line. Like by the time I come to the studio, the song is usually written start to finish. I've usually like practiced it and have it memorized. Um, a lot of times I've performed it before too. So like. Um, so that part I have maintained, but aside from that, I don't have a lot of like formalized routines. So, got you, got you. Um, as far as the yeah, you know, the type of uh, music that you do, um, I know Jay Z has his famous line that you know I could have been rhyming like common like sense, common and sense, right. <laughs> since I made a meal, I ain't been rhyming like common sense, right? So, um, what would you say to those that say like, yo, like why can't you just dumb it down like Lupe, you know, and like Lupe song mentions and just keep it simple, man. Like I got to throw in those SAT words and rhyme about things I got to think hard about and all this kind of stuff. Like, uh, mm-hmm. what do you say to those that are like, yo, this is, this is too much, man. Like, why can't you just simplify it, man? Like, that's a good question. I mean, what I say is that there's place and space for everybody there. So there's place for people who do the mindless, simplistic, um music that's just for the moment to get you excited and that you might forget about in six months but for me my goal anytime i write something is to have something that's timely and timeless and so i want to be able to speak to the current moment in a way that is unique and piercing but i also want what i say to be true today and to be true tomorrow it was true yesterday and so for me, that's that's a lot of the pushing in. Beyond that, I just want to give people the best that I can that I can give them. And so there's place for Nas, there's place for Jay-Z, 
There's place for common, but then there's also a place for amigos and baby, both little baby and the baby. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> I mean, there's there, there's place for Meg the Stallion and Rhapsody. You know what I mean? There's place for Maya Amina Yusuf. And so, I say that to say, hip hop is so diverse and so vast that there can be room for all of that. And beyond it, the last thing I would say too is like, I mean, sometimes I do use SAT words, but for me, my music is an authentic reflection of who I am. So like, that's also how I speak. So like, I'm not using words that I don't ordinarily use in casual conversation. And I try to write in such a way that even if you may have to go to a dictionary to find what one of those words mean, you should be able to follow the natural import of what I'm saying. So even if like even if via context clues, so like I don't I may not know what that word means, right. but the way he used it in a sentence, I kind of get a sense of what the word means. Mm. Kind of kind of go from there. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so um, you pretty much went from like you know HBCU uh, mm-hmm. doing your thing over there to a PWI in Villanova. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like? And what was like, you know, your law school experience? Like, I know you were struggling with, you know, do I teach, do I practice law, like kind of thing. So uh, yeah. can you talk to us about that. So I loved my time at Morehouse. Those were those were some of the four best years of my life. Like I said, I met lifelong friends. I met my wife during that period of time. I grew as a man. I grew as a professional in that period of time. And being at Morehouse was affirming for me as a Black man in ways that was necessary for me. And then when I went to Villanova, I felt as though I had a great foundation. I was confident in who I was. I'd received great training. And I had also, I had spent my formative years prior to Morehouse in an environment like that. So for me, Villanova wasn't as much of a culture shock as it was for many of my Black colleagues. Many of my Black colleagues, some of, some of whom won't even go back. They speak so unfavorably about it. But I had an incredible experience there. I had professors and administrators who were looking out for me and were invested in my success, um, some of whom I'm still in contact with on occasion. And I've made some friends that I still speak to from that period of time. But what I will say is law school is difficult. It stretched me and tested me in ways that... um, that that I made me question myself at times. So like I moved to Philadelphia without a place to stay. So I didn't know, I didn't really know anyone in Philadelphia at the time, at least no one I was comfortable living with. And Villanova didn't have graduate housing. And so when it's time for me to get ready to go for my orientation, so I packed up my little Nissan Sentra and I told my parents I'm leaving. And they're like, well, where are you going to sleep when you get there? And I was like, I'll figure it out when I get there. I was like, God will take care of me. And my dad was like, but Timothy, where are you going to sleep? And I was like, Dad, I will sleep in my car if I have to. But like, I feel like this is what I need to do at this time in my life. And so I left. And um, and so, like, I mean, it's a long story, but the short end of it is things worked out. But that first year was really challenging because I was navigating the rigors of law school and just the newness of it and the academic side of it. And then I was still trying to navigate, like finding a place to stay. I eventually did. And then like just navigating, not having any money at first. And so like, I was a broke law student. And so like, just dealing with all of that. And, and then too, as I was struggling personally, and sometimes in some of my early classes, I also, I was beginning to wonder, had I made a mistake? Should I have gone and done something else? And so for me, I 
got so much support from my wife um, at the time we were just dating, at least the first half of law school. And my sister was an undergrad at Princeton, so she was about an hour away. So my wife was two hours away in grad school in New York, and my sister was an hour away in Princeton. So I would spend the weekends with them. One weekend I'd see my sister, one weekend I'd see my wife. And so like that was really helpful. I started writing a lot more then. So like in my free time, I was writing. And then I began volunteering in Philadelphia and in Chester too. And so beginning to find those outlets helped to center and ground me. And so, and it was during that period of time that I started piecing together that there are ways that I can do both, that I can right. be an educator, I can do the law. And then I, I wrote what became Shades of Grace. Um, that's my second album. I wrote most of that in law school. And so like some of my peers are like, how in the world are you writing songs <laughs> <laughs> while we're in law school? It's because like my law school like at Villanova, we did like we did like a, a few things that incorporated like talent, like talent like shows and open mics and stuff like that. And like people would kind of do like karaoke and stuff like that, but like no one really took it seriously. They're not coming like do a real song, but they're like, wait a minute, what are you doing right now? Like that's a real <laughs> song. You wrote that. And then like one of my professors was like, How does someone with so much vibrance and life in them come to, to like law school? Like, why are you in law school? Like, you should go and do something else. <laughs> but uh I said that to say it was a trying set of experiences. I I don't know, one day I might like write about it or something like that. Some people have thought I should make a movie about the period of my life or like just the Philadelphia years up to this point too. But um, it came together in, in beautiful ways. Got you, got you. And I know around, I guess that same period of time you were volunteering at a school and kind of one of the things that influenced you, I guess, to, to teach and everything was experience you had with a black boy. So can you talk to us? Oh, about that? yeah. So that was actually before. So, um, okay. yeah. So fall of my freshman year at Morehouse, I was a part of a service, um, community service-based scholarship program called the Bonner Scholars Program. And basically the Bonner Scholars were looking at a couple of things. They're lo looking at one, there are some students who come in and need financial support. And then two, they're like, those students who need financial support likely would would end up having to work to help offset their uh, their their living and and make ends meet. And so what the Bonner program did was they would give us a scholarship, and part of that came with a stipend. And the one caveat was we had to do some community service. And so basically, what they were saying was instead of you going and getting a part time job at some some little run run of the mill spot in the neighborhood. We'll give you close to what you would have gotten there, but spend that time doing community service. So we get like a monthly stipend. So I sat down with my scholarship director and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm really like, I like kids and I want to see if like maybe I can help them. And she's like, well, what age? And I said, well, middle school seems like a good age because like they're in a transitionary phase and like maybe I can help set the trajectory of their life in a good direction. And she's like, well, there's a middle school down the street from here. So I'll set you up there. So fall of freshman year. I go down to Joseph, what was then called Joseph Emerson Brown Middle School is a middle school and uh, about a 15 minute walk from Morehouse's campus. And so I get there, I meet the guidance counselor. She says, I'm gonna put you in contact with the teacher. Her name is Ms. Kirk. She teaches sixth grade biology. Get to Ms. Kirk's class. And I introduce myself and tell her I'll be coming a few days a week. I'd love to help in any way I can. And she said, you, and she described her class. She said she had about 25 or 28 students. And she says, you know, 
generally speaking, they're good kids, you know, they're children. So sometimes they get out of line, but for the most part, I can handle them. And then she points to this kid in the back and she says, except for this kid, Cedric. And she says, you know, sometimes he's a disruption. And once he gets distracted, he will get his classmates who are next to him off task. And then once they get off task, that whole section of the class gets off task. So she said, if you can get Cedric in line, if you can just work on him, I got the rest of the class. Right. So I said, what do you want me to do? She said, she gives me a worksheet. She says, listen, it was like just a front and back worksheet. She said, if you can get through this, then um, if y'all can get through this by the time the class is over, that, that'll be a success. And they were talking about cell division. So I'll go back and sit down with him. We're talking about cell division. And he seems to understand all of that. So I'm like, why is this kid struggling? I'm, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to let this skinny kid run me. We're going to get this in there. <laughs> so I said, Cedric, write your name down on this paper. So let's go on and do this and then you'll be done for the day. And he slowly and sloppily prints his name. And then he said, I just last bit last week. And I said, mm. what did you just say? He said, I just last bit last week. And I said, are you saying that you just learned how to spell your name last week? And he said, yeah. And I was stunned mm. and so like we stumbled through that worksheet and true to form just like his teacher said it took us about the whole class to do it so the bell rings he leaves and I go talk to his teacher and I said do you know that Cedric is struggling because he can't read she's like yeah she's she's like yeah I guess so and I said no like he's illiterate like he told me he just learned how to write his name last week and then she said yeah that's probably right and I was like, how does that happen? And then she says social promotion. So she says, you know, he was a problem for other teachers throughout the years. And so they just passed him on to someone else and he became someone else's problem. But now he's at the point where we can't do that anymore. He has to meet certain state standards before he can go to the next grade. And she's like, but he's 15. This is his third time in the sixth grade. And I was like, what? And like I went home to my I went to my dorm room and almost cried because I was like I went to a school in the same county of the same state and I got an exemplary education. My school was a national school of excellence. We were we were breaking records all across the state, sometimes across the country. My school was the first in the country to get internet um, in the in this computer lab. And so like and so when I and I started thinking about the purported like learning curve and the bell curve and the achievement gap and all of these things. And I was like, that's what it is. And so like people like him are expected to compete against kids who went to my school, but in my affluent white suburb, nobody is illiterate. It's, you don't make it to sixth grade not knowing how to read and write, but this child was neglected his entire educational experience. And so for me, that, that little spark under me. So I started volunteering and tutoring at that school four to five days a week for the rest of the semester. And then there's an educational nonprofit that had an after school program. I started doing that also. So I'd go to Ms. Kirk's class, then I'd go to the educational nonprofit. The educational nonprofit had a summer program. I started working with that. And then I started working with their school year program the next year. And I basically did that the entirety of undergrad. In my senior year of, of undergrad, I started a mentoring program with a good friend of mine who's also a civil rights attorney now. So we did that. And then when I graduated, I worked for the educational nonprofit that, um, I, was, that I learned about at the middle school. 
And that nonprofit was housed at an elite private school. So basically what it was, the nonprofit would have its program and they would get students from all across Atlanta, but they'd bring them to this prestigious private school and do their programming there, especially for the summer. And so when I started working full time there, it was that headmaster who was like, Tim, you're a natural teacher. And so, like, I know you're working with the educational nonprofit, but would, would you be would you be willing to teach a class with me, too? And so it was in that it was in that space of times so when we're talking like from 2005 through 2006, I'm working for the educational nonprofit as their college prep coordinator and teaching a class at the high school. And right. that was my first formal teaching experience. And so I left that job to go to law school thinking that I was going to stay in education when I graduated from law school and then had the journey to get to where I am now. Got you, got you. And that kind of, you know, progressed into kind of where you are now with. Yes. The, um, I know you mentioned that in a previous interview that you started your uh, hip hop class kind of as a high school class. And yeah, man, you did your homework. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We always do. <laughs> so it started as a high school class and then yeah. somehow, you know, hit the, you know, the luck of whatever. And uh, you had a friend that that stopped teaching the hip hop class at Temple and yeah. you were able to get it. And you were able to use kind of that that same type of, you know, curriculum and everything. So what what was that initial experience like transitioning into Temple and teaching like what many would say would be like a dream class here. It is a dream class. (laughs) It's a a dream class. It's an answer to prayer. And G, you have done your homework. Um, So that educational nonprofit I was just talking about, it's called Breakthrough. When I first started working with them, they're called Summer Bridge. Their, Their flagship program is a summer program that's six weeks. And it gets college students and sometimes high school students to teach middle school students. And so during the morning, the teachers teach math, science, English, or history. And so like the goal is to kind of like reinforce their foundation and prepare them for the coming school year and also get them around positive role models. And then in the afternoon during the summer program, the teachers being us college students and the like, we got to create classes. And so like, I loved hip hop. I was rapping a lot at the time. So I made a hip hop class. And so like I made a whole curriculum and started teaching that. And so flash forward, to fall uh, summer 2011, a producer friend of mine is filming a video for his, one of his songs. He wants his friends to be extras in the video. So I get down there. I almost didn't go that night because I wasn't feeling well. But I told my wife, I said, I told Dave, I'll be there. I'm going to be there. So I get down there and I think I'm late, but they actually started late. So the director said, y'all being us being the extras, why don't y'all talk outside while we film some solo scenes? We'll bring you in. And so what ends up happening, I'm talking to a um, friend of mine. I, I, well, at that point, I'm just meeting him. We're just nerding out about music. And he had heard the album I had just put out. And we were talking about that, talking about music. And then he starts asking me questions about my schedule and my availability. And speaking of my availability, I had just been laid off. So like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I am at the lowest of lows in terms of just morale, like trying to put two pennies together, trying to figure out what's my next move and things like that. My wife is pregnant um, with my son. My oldest daughter is about a year and change. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what I'm gonna do with my career. And then he says, well, you know what? I teach this hip hop. He says, I teach this class at Temple. I can't do it anymore. Would you be willing to do it? 
And I said, sure. What's it called? He said, hip hop and black culture. And I almost fell out. And I said, I said, ain't no way you teach a hip hop class at a university. He said, I do. He said, would you do it? I said, yes. And I was like, that's like an answer to prayer, dude. Like, cause like ever since I had done it at the educational nonprofit, I wanted to do it at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. So that was a Wednesday night. Thursday morning, he calls me and says, can you meet the department chair Friday afternoon? I said, I can. And so I'll be there. So I was there. I met with him, did a um, impromptu interview. The department chair said, um, you got the gig. Go talk to our department manager. She'll give you the paperwork. Class starts in like three weeks, four weeks, something like that. And so to be perfectly honest, I was so nervous getting started. I was 29. Some of my, most of my students were seniors, so they're like 22. And when they found out how old I was, some of them were like, my brother's your age. And one of the women, one of the women was like, I've dated men older than you. <laughs> so like, um, so I said all of that to say, but I built a great rapport with them and I was able to convey the material in, in great ways. Some of them were like, you're the best professor I've ever had. And this is my literal first semester ever teaching in a university. So like, mm-hmm. and my first day I went to the wrong classroom and, and then I figured I was in the wrong classroom. I had to run across campus and get to the right classroom. And I got there, introduced myself. And like I said, I was really just learning as I went along, but, um, God just really blessed. Like I said, I taught the course well, built a great rapport with the students. They gave me incredible feedback. And that really set the foundation for me being able to do this in a long-term way. Yeah, that is uh, excellent, man. I think that it's just a brilliant class. Whoever thought of the idea of having it as a class, because just the amount of information that can be packed into music and hip hop and like we mentioned before with the oppression and just mm-hmm. everything that's packed into a song, an album, or, yes. uh, you know, a series of songs and albums. So uh, it's just so much learning there. And I think uh, these students nowadays, I feel old saying that, but <laughs> <laughs> these students nowadays don't really have that respect for the culture of where it came from. Like we mentioned before, like they're used to probably the Migos that you mentioned and the babies and, you know, artists like that and not really knowing where this came from, where it transpired from, and the conscious artists and the artists that are activists and doing things for Black folks and things like that. So definitely an opportunity to share, to shed that light. And you've done that, and you've introduced your students to a lot of artists too. We got Lecrae, you know, YF, yeah. um, Zoo York. Yeah, man. Um, so what was like uh, that, you know, experience like being able to, you know, present those type of folks see a class i was able to watch the uh, interview that you did with Wyclef, which was oh man that was incredible yeah was- man you could just from the interview man you could just feel the vibe of the you know interview the class was locked yeah. in and you yes. were locked in and Wyclef just spitting just gems on top yeah. of gems <laughs> you know Wyclef so Wyclef is incredible man so um so I'll answer both of your questions. So the first part is you're exactly right. I use the course. I tell the students first day that, yes, we're talking about hip hop, but we're going to talk about so much more than that. So we're going to talk about hip hop as a microcosm of the black experience. We'll talk about hip hop and, and African cultural retentions, and we'll have topical discussions, too. So we'll talk about hip hop's response to police brutality, hip hop's portrayal of women, hip hop and cultural appropriation. Like we talk about all of these things in class and the music. And the culture that it, from it, that it comes from becomes a talking point to lead us into those discussions. 
In terms of the artist, man, that is that is one of my favorite parts of the class. And that's something that's grown over time. Um, it didn't really, so it, so what happened when I first started teaching the class, I was like, you know, it would be great to just bring some of my favorite artists to class and in part because they're living what we're talking about. Right. And to be perfectly honest, early on, when I started reaching out to artists, they see the EDU and my email address and they're like, oh, he teaches at a university. They got money. And so whatever their fee was <laughs> for their honorarium, they would give me the top end of the range and be like, yeah, this is what I want. Because they're like, my man just did a homecoming at so-and-so university. <laughs> you know, he got like, you know, he got like, well, whatever, whatever. And I'm here I am like, at that point, not making much of any money, like I was like, they barely paid me. Like they're not about to fly you across the country and give you five figures to talk to students for an hour and a half. Like it's just, it's not that type of party. And then what started happening is gradually over time, artists began seeing the value of coming to campus and engaging potential fans. Because at the very least, some of them, some of them can like engage listeners, create new listeners, and even um, do like focus groups. So like when Nick Grant came to class, for example, he was a brand new artist, and a label was trying to introduce him to potential fans. So we did a silent listening party, and so what ended up happening is they had this technology where we put on these headphones, and uh, and they was they they would Bluetooth the music to us. So like. So we all had on the headphones and that's how we were hearing the music. And then Nick Grant um, and, and his label rep, they were like, which songs do y'all like better? Why? Um, what do you think about Nick's rapping? And then those students helped Nick pick the single for his next EP. And so like so stuff, stuff like that was dope. When Wyclef came, um, so what happened my club loves battle rap, like loves battle rap to the point that I would not be surprised if you see him jump in the ring with somebody at some point. He like loves <laughs> and he watches them. He knows some of the, especially like some of the guys from New Jersey, like Arsenal, is for, for example. Mm. Uh, he loves it. So what happened, he was coming to Philly um, to do some promotion for his album Carnival 2. And so the label reaches out because at this point, it's, it's kind of becoming a thing to kind of come to the class. And mm-hmm. so the label reaches out and they're like, hey, we heard your hip hop professor, Clef, is coming to campus. Uh, well, Clef is coming to the city. Like, could you throw together a rap battle and let him be one of the judges? Because <laughs> I had hosted a couple of rap battles before and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And I was like, but they wanted me to do it in like 24 hours or maybe 36 hours. And I was like, to be perfectly honest, we could do that, but it would not be a good showing with that amount of time. And I said, what we could do though, and what the label, what the label rec who reached out to me said was, we're afraid that like people who are in the age range or your students don't know Clef for real because they were like babies when the score came out, if they were even born. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if you're if your desire is to introduce him to students, let me sit down and interview him. Cause like I say, I teach a hip hop class. I teach it on the day that he's in town. So what we can do is we can stop class. We can interview him invite anybody who wants to come. And then like that way they can learn about his history. They can learn about the new music, all of that. So they're like, we love it. And when Clef came man, he was so gracious. He signed every autograph. He shook every hand. Anybody who wanted a picture, and when I say anybody, anybody. 
So like there were um, custodians who were working and they were kind of sheepish about like wanting to stop working. He was like, come over here and get a picture, man. And then like he was That's eating cool. like, and then after we were done with class, we did a cipher and then we went to the student center to get him something to eat. And like a lot of celebrities don't like to be disturbed while they're eating and like people were coming up to him. He would stop eating, take pictures with people. Um, the Haitian student club brought the Haitian flag. He signed it for them. Um, and then there's another, there's a company in Philly called Rec Philly. Um, they, they do a lot around artist engagement and, and development. Um, they, their tagline is they're like planet fitness for artists. So like artists pay like a membership and then you have access to like state-of-the-art uh, audio equipment, studio equipment, workspaces, things like that. They also do workshops and educational seminars and things like that to help artists grow and, and develop. Mm -hmm. They were at a pivotal point where they were shifting to becoming the large organization that they are now. They had done incredible work already and like, but they weren't where they are now. Uh, and they were, but they're definitely on their way. One of their founders comes up to Clef right before they get started. And he explained the vision of what they were doing and everything like that. And even they were filming that day. He says, would you be willing to wear our jacket in the video? Clef takes off this jacket and this jacket was thousands of dollars. He was, my man was flexing in some <laughs> custom leather jacket. But my man takes his jacket off, just throws it randomly in the seat that he's sitting in and then puts on their jacket and then sat down and did an hour and a half interview with me. Oh. And then um, he... Then after that, we did the cipher and um, my man stepped into the cipher and, and rap like his life depended on it. And then <laughs> <laughs> so like so like Clef was incredible. But I say that to say um, now it's a little easier to get artists. When I, my first two, three years, it was hard because people were like, we want you to pay for us to fly into the city. We want you to pay for a hotel. We want you, you to give us an honorarium. And sometimes we'd have these other request too and I was like I just simply don't have the budget to do that like I said they were barely paying me at the time right but and, and who've you who've you had up to this point so um I'm, I'm gonna try not to forget names but I've had Wyclef I've had Lecrae I've had Toby and Wigway Fat and oh, now one of my favorites right there I love I love what they're doing right now they they are man they are exactly like they come across on social media like so much so that I, I told them several times, like, I feel like I know y'all already. Cause like I follow y'all on social media and I see what y'all are doing. And it was like, I, I was like, I know it's gotta be weird for y'all cause y'all are just now meeting me, but I feel like I've known y'all for years, but I mean, they're so down to earth. They are so, um, so gregarious, um, so appreciative. Um, and so like, we could have packed out the largest classroom in the university and like, had hundreds of people in there and they're like, nah, just whoever's in your class, whoever's registered in your class, let's just keep it at that. We'll just give them a nice little experience. We'll talk to them. We'll sign whatever they want to sign, invite them to the show that night. But they came, they were incredible. Um, Andy Minio, KB, um, Sky Zoo has come twice. Um, Bree Steves has come through. Chill Moody is the first friend of the class. Um, he was the first established artist to say yes and then come back. Um, Reef the Lost Cause, um, um, Mira Fontaine, um, Propaganda has come twice. And so it's, it, it's, it's been a good um, cross-section of people. Uh, Iron Solomon, the Battle Rappers come twice. Um, 
Solomon was great too, man. Like Solomon, so, so like, you know, battle rap is so full of um, bravado and things like that, but Solomon is so humble, so gracious. Um, so he, he's, and, and just really gracious with his time too, and just really open. Um, man, I, I just want to go back to college and take your class real quick. <laughs> <laughs> man, like you, so you can, you can absolutely come through. When, when this is over, I'll send you a link. The first two weeks of classes are going to be virtual. Um, so, oh man, yo, I, let me so, know. So, so, come, so you come through. And so, so those first two weeks, we're going to do it virtual because um, the universities is trying to be cautious about Omicron. And so they want to ease back into in-person learning. We mm-hmm. were really fortunate to have a pretty good semester last semester. It was our first semester back in person um, since March, of, since um, spring of 2020. And so they so they don't want any interruptions. And so they're trying to ease us back into it. And so right. I said that to say it'll be virtual. So like, you know, if you're, if you're available, like you can come through. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, man, that that how how has, um, you know, the students I know you've probably had students that are, you know, hip hop artists or they're aspiring yeah. artists and things like that you know, that's a dream come true. Like some of these people coming through, you know, where you would not have the ability to access them and ask some questions and mm-hmm. you know, get that kind of dialogue. So how have they responded to, you know, the opportunities that you provided in that class? They've been great. Um, so just as you suspected, I've had a few students who have gone on to have successful music careers, one of whom was already and he already had a successful career at the point in which he was in my class. His name is Alex, Alexander Azar. He just goes by uh, Alexander Charles now, but he was in a group called mm-hmm. Ground Up. And at the point in which he was taking my class, he was in like my first or second class ever. And maybe my third class. He, I had him very early, but like at that point, like they were selling out shows. They would random, they would, they would regularly tour the country. They would tour Europe and stuff like that. So like he was like legit. Um, a successful artist on his way to just really becoming established in the industry at the point he took my class and like he was just also just very gracious to the point that like he and and very humble about his music too like his first day of class he comes up you know professor you know I don't know if you've really heard of my group but you know like I do music too and I'm like well I've heard of you and stuff like that And I had to force him to play his music in class because he was really sheepish. But um, I've had some other students too. Um, I've had at least two or three other students who are doing really well for themselves to the point that they could probably pursue music full time if they're not already. Mm-hmm. And so those those students really they they they're like voraciously consume the content they really want to learn the history and the connections and kind of build and when we bring artists and things like that they love it and I, and I try to do it for that reason too like this semester I brought a few music executives and producers so like I brought Ness from the from the collective working on dying they work with everyone from Drake to Travis Scott Lil Uzi Vert mm-hmm. Um, I have a former student, Ben Thomas, who is a studio organizer. I'm sorry. He is, he's a studio owner. He owns a physical studio in Philadelphia. Oh. He's also an audio engineer and producer. He's actually little Uzi Vert's personal engineer. He works with Uzi every day, mm. but he's also worked with, he's, done, he's worked on projects with everyone from President Obama to Jasmine Sullivan to Post Malone um, and the like. And so he comes every semester. And so when we have, 
people like that come is not only are the students able to learn from this person who's in front of them, but it's also really inspirational too. Cause it's Absolutely. like, cause Ben, I think Ben may be 25. And so when he comes, I tell the students, I say he was just sitting in your seat two, two, three years ago. And now, you know, look at all the things he's done. He's Grammy nominated um, for this Jasmine Sullivan album. Uh, he's, he was nominated in um, last year's cycle. So he likely will get a Grammy this year. Uh, with, with with his work with Jasmine. And, um, and I was like, you know, you can do this. And Bree Steves, the same thing, like her career took off while she was at Temple. I didn't teach her while she was a student, but she came back and she's, I think Bree is signed to um, Atlantic. And so like, you know, she's um, doing stuff with Ty Dolla Sign and, and TDE and like her own career is is doing really well soon so like the students can see someone like that again mm-hmm. she was just sitting in the seat a year or two ago and like now you know she's on stage with Kendrick at Made in America yeah, you know what that I mean? is so man and that is so dope man that you're pretty much inspiring the culture and giving the you know pretty much hip-hop that life back and given these kids that are doing the music and people coming in that the idea of what it's supposed to be and you know all of the the uh the things that are connected to what hip-hop is and it should be so kudos to you for for doing yeah, that thank you influencing the culture man um and i wanted to kind of get into your music as well okay yeah absolutely yeah man definitely uh so you have a song that as a teacher i'm like <laughs> this this hits home so yeah, so one one of your songs in the album No City for Young Men um is rap and play ball too. Yeah, rap and play ball, yeah. And I'm listening to that, I'm like, yo, <laughs> I'm just reimagining moments in my classroom where you know I'm talking to you know black boys, I'm going around the room, like, yo, what do you want to do? I want to rap. What do you want to do? I'm playing ball. Rap. What do you want to yeah. do? Rap. We want ball, rap. Like in literally, it is like anybody that works with young black boys, like go around and ask them like. I guarantee you'll get rap ball, whether it's football, basketball, mm-hmm. so whatever ball, rap ball, rap ball, rap ball. <laughs> yep, <laughs> Some of them yep. don't even play ball and they want to play ball like for yep, a living. I'm like, true. yo, you don't even, you're not even on the team. Like, what are you not doing? even on the team. Yeah. <laughs> so I really related to that song, man. So I just wanted well, to take you. a second to pause and, um, you know, play the song to analyze it just a little okay. bit. Concrete jungle reared in a suburban wilderness. I observe and bewilderment absurd. Our children live in both all patrol to the sick and in hope. They distribute rock to get a wicked shot to the pros. The plot then unfolds. They don't want to be a doctor no more. Unless they doctored Ray Doctor and the beats and rocking the flow. A Dr. J rocking froze, but he rocks in a coat. It's like the only option they know. It's gotten so old. But Yeezy told them system broken, the school is closed, the prison's open. Part of the reason why our voices isn't focused. They want to dribble up or be LeBron James or keep on rapping till they get some big Sean fame. They could be more than that. And it goes beyond saying, but even our girls. Wanna go the route Beyonce went And we were more supportive of our sons and our daughters They would be architects, engineers, and lawyers They would be preachers and teachers The days that they grow up They would be entrepreneurs Someone's employer, but we're not So they want that celebrity path But Chris Rock lives next to a dentist Do the math, it's 467 in the NBA About four times that in the NFL If we teach our kids other ways in which they'll be great Tell them pray and work hard Then they'll excel, but they wanna rap and play ball Ball and play rap, make the 
put their verb on the map. They wanna rap and play ball, ball and play rap, make their way out to trap. Put their verb on the map. They wanna rap and play ball, ball and play rap, make their way out to trap. Put their verb on the map. They wanna rap and play ball, rap and play ball, rap and play ball, rap and play ball. I know the irony of rhyming me saying you should be aspiring to be a rapper when I'm rapping, but look. I am me. I went to school twice. I left for my degrees. And if I never rap again, I know that I can teach. I know I represent. I know that I can lead. But when I choose to rap, I put fire on beats. I inspire these seas not to die in these streets and put their faith in Christ. It's all that they'll need. When in the interim, I just want to mentor them and keep them away from the evil that tries to enter them. When in the interim, I just want to mentor them and keep them away from the evil that tries to enter them. Rap and play ball, ball and play rap. Make them way out to trap. Put their verb on the map. They wanna rap and play ball. Ball and play rap. Make them way out to trap. Put their verb on the map. They wanna rap and play ball. Ball and play rap. Make them way out to trap. Put their verb on the map. They wanna rap and play ball. 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 I want to be a real scholar like my hero Bill Bradley. Uh, if he did it, I want to try to do it as well. And so three years later, I was fortunate to, to earn that scholarship. And then I went to see my teachers and academic advisors at FSU and tell them that I want you guys to help increase my intellectual capital so one day I can be an outstanding pediatric neurosurgeon like another one of my influences, Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, now I'm a second-year medical student, uh, hopefully able to do that in the future. And lastly, I went to my strength coaches and my athletic trainers and my football coaches, Bobby Bowden included, and told them that I want them to equip my body and get me ready for a career as a, a national football player. And uh, fortunately, I was able to be drafted by the Titans and play for the Steelers as well. Well, it was well. It was as well. It was as well. So, yeah, that was um, Rap and Play Ball 2. So I wanted to kind of ask you what kind of inspired you to write that and then dive into some of the things that you mentioned in the song, which I think are super important, um, you know, like mentioning that chris rock lives next to a dentist yeah. <laughs> you know, and some of these some of these yeah, yeah some of yeah. these uh you know celebrities some of these athletes like they live next to regular people mm-hmm. like that you would never know like on the streets you know what i'm saying so um I, I think a lot of kids think that you know in order to make it they have to be these things and this is what's been promoted you know like we mentioned before um but it is easier to be a dentist it is easier to be some of these things as opposed to you know dealing with the odds of becoming a professional basketball player like uh, but yeah so what 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 did you have in mind writing that song and um you know what what um inspired you to write it oh so that's a great question so uh, I, it begins with a friend of mine from Morehouse um, who also was in law school around the same time as I, uh, Wendell Holland. He actually won Survivor a few years ago. So there was a brief stint where he was rapping and he had a song called Rap and Ball. And he was talking about a friend of his who was trying to make it into the league and his career got derailed by injury and, and how, how all the hanger-ons and things like that were trying to like to steal from him or or to to mooch off of him and things like that. So I thought the song was dope. And I was like, hey, let's make a remix called The Rap Involved um, 2. And, and then I want to talk about how like so many of the young people that I've encountered, just like you said, want to rap and play ball. And so mm-hmm. things kind of fell through with him hopping on a remix, but I asked if I asked him if I could keep the title the same. He was like, cool. So like that's how the song began. And I really kind of lay it out in the first verse. Uh, I live in a concrete jungle reared in a suburban wilderness. I observe in bewilderment how absurd our children live in both. And so just talking about how like 
when I was in the suburbs or like when I'm in various parts of urban America, I'm running into the same issue where so many of our young boys believe that their only means of escaping their current condition is rapping or playing ball. And so I wanted to just talk about that in and of itself and just comment on that mentality. And then while also encouraging them to think about something more than just that. And so, and then I even kind of, um, I guess, um, pull back the curtain a little bit, even and say, you know, I know the irony of rhyming me saying you shouldn't be aspiring yeah. to be a rapper when I'm rapping, but look, I am me. And I'm like, listen, like, I know it's really ironic <laughs> that this dude is rapping to you about, like, you should consider doing something other than rapping and playing ball. But I'm like, listen, I went to school twice. I have two degrees. If, you know, if I decide to stop rapping, I could still work in those various fields. And so like, mm -hmm. that's what, so that, so that's what I was trying to convey. And then the song ends with um, part of a speech from Myron Roll at a Senate hearing where they were talking about um, various legislation that was dealing with collegiate athletes. And Myron Roll is a neurosurgeon, but Myron Roll became, Roll became I guess, an international superstar in part because he was um, he played collegiate football and at the time was projected to be like a top 10 draft pick. But he also became a Rhodes Scholar, which was really unique to be a Rhodes Scholar and playing football because usually Rhodes Scholars come from other sports and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then he took and then he took the Rhodes Scholarship. He did that. Then he actually came and played in the NFL for a little bit. And then after that, his, his goal was to also be a neurosurgeon. So he excelled in college, he excelled academically, he played professional football, and then he's now a neurosurgeon. And so I thought it was a perfect way to kind of end it all to show that like, even if you do go this route, you don't have to limit yourself by thinking that's the only thing you'll do with your life too. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I work with athletes as well. And I always tell them like, yo, you are more than just an athlete. And I think yes. that the whole culture kind of caters to, you know, just the athlete mindset. Even when these athletes get into college, like, don't mm. worry about going to class. We got you kind of thing. Mm. And you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's not even thought about. And, you know, a lot of these kids don't end up getting degrees, you know, that go to school for whatever sport. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I thought that song, you know, definitely just uh, hit home for me. Like a lot of my experiences with, with Black boys talking about career stuff, man. Um and you even mentioned too, like there's like 467 players yes. in the NBA, man. And I think <laughs> about four times that in the NFL. That's exactly right. Yeah, man. A lot of times we don't think about the statistics, you know, at least the kids don't think about this. This is I, I just want to do this. But do you know? I was talking to one uh, um, you know, a student before, and he's like, Yo, I want to be in the NBA, of course. Um, and I'm yes. like, all right, cool. I'm like, yo, so how are you gonna compete with uh other people all over the world that want to be in the NBA and take one spot, you know, out mm -hmm. of all these, you know, out of the limited 467 that's there, like, how are you going to take that spot? And what are you doing right now? I'm like, what did you do today? Oh, we got practice at three o'clock. I'm like, but what did you do today? Like before that? Um, I'm like, yo, I know a kid right now that wakes up and puts in two and a half hours of work before school starts. School. His mouth was like open. I'm like, yeah, he's your age. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. that kid is putting those hours in and you go into just practice. You know what I'm saying? So um, how you master in your craft. And I think, you know, a lot of the kids don't understand the work that it takes to get to these levels. And, you know, like it looks when LeBron's going up for a dunk and, mm -hmm. you know, um, whoever, you know, is tossing that football, 
um it looks good but we don't see the work that they put in all that kind of stuff they make it look easy exactly but that part of the song actually came from a real conversation i had a very similar conversation with one of the students who was in an educational nonprofit. he was in the eighth grade talk about he was going to go to the league and he was going to play at unc and be their starting point guard first and I, and I asked I asked him I said are you even on your school's team right now He's like no nah, I'll be on it next year, and then I, I told him I said listen I said I don't think you understand I said I don't want to crush your dreams because certainly it's possible but I want you to understand Absolutely. what you're asking, mm-hmm. and I told him I said it's like 467 people in the NBA they bring in 60 people every year per the draft so that means. Some of those people who are in the NBA right now won't be in the NBA next year because they're bringing mm. in 60 new people from the draft. And they'll probably bring in about 25 to 30 other people on 10-day contracts and stuff like that. So you're looking at maybe you're looking for one of 60 to 75 spots in a given year. And when you think about the hundreds of thousands of people who play college ball, they all were the best in their high school. Many of them were the best in their state. All of them don't go to the league. Only, and then you got people overseas who are playing too, some of whom have been playing professionally beginning at the age that you are right now. And so what I, so like what I did, I told them, I said, listen, man, I said, some of us teachers, we play ball um, when y'all go home. So like after our staff meeting, we play ball after that. Ask your mom if you can stay late and play ball with us. I said, if you dominate us, I will do everything I can to get you in the league. And if you don't, I'm going to do everything I can to see that you get a scholarship to UNC. But like, let's not let's not crush the dream. If you want to go to UNC, let's try to figure that out. Right. But like, I also want you to understand that if you want to be a, if you want to go into UNC being a basketball player, like you got to understand the level of commitment that it takes. And so he came, he, he hooped with us. He did OK. But like he he learned he learned very quickly that he did not have the skill set that he thought he did. And like one of the things I was telling him, I was like, when Kobe Bryant was your age, he was dominating grown men, some of whom were already in the league. That was one mm-hmm. of his. That was one of the litmus tests for him that he knew that he was on the right track. Yeah. Like you know he's like you know he's like a sophomore in college, and like you know coming up and playing against people who were in the league or people who were like. Um, starting at D1 schools and stuff like that. And so, and then even still, he was doing like you were saying, like he's still getting up at at ridiculous hours in the morning and working hours before school starts, going to practice, then working after practice and getting up and doing it again again the next day. And so, so that's so much of what the song is about, just looking at like, you know, there's so much more opportunity. You have a better chance of being a doctor, lawyer, engineer, uh, corporate CEO, entrepreneur, educator, and there's no shame in that either. There's there's great opportunity and dignity for that. And so, like, if it doesn't happen for you the way that you envision, you can still do something else. So, like, that's so so, so much of the so song was about that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely, man. And I think it's up to us educators to kind of remind these kids that you know, you're more than just an athlete, and mm-hmm. the same way. You know, I had a student that he knows every single stat on the planet, like for basketball. I'm like, yo, mm-hmm. the same way you telling me all these stats, you could throw, you should be, math should be your best subject right now. You fail in mm-hmm. math, bro. Like what's going on with that? Yeah, I thought about that. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's the same level. It's the same intelligence. You just care about this other thing more. 
So why not just put that energy into a mat? You know what I'm saying? I'm so glad you said that. because that So on No City for Young Men, the song right before Rapping Ball is a song called The Miseducation. In the second half of the second verse, I talk about that. And, um, and, I, say, and I say, like, you'll pound a ball down a 94-foot court and use force to hurl it and make it soar. Watch it spin and contort till it swishes for you to score. That's the very thing that you often do for sport. But your retort is you don't understand physics at its core. The truth is you have forsaken a legacy of yours. And so I'm like, I'm basically saying, like, you understand physics because you can take a spherical ball and pound it with enough force for it to hit the hit the ground and come back up to your hand. And you know how to change speed and change direction and go down a 90 foot for uh, 94 foot court. And when you're 22 feet from the basket, you know how to use enough force to, to hurl that ball into like a 12 inch cylinder to score. Right. That's the core components of physics. You can live out physics. You understand physics cognitively. And so like, that's even like what, what that song was talking about. And then it goes straight into rapping balls. So like, that's even kind of how the songs kind of, kind of um, play into each other in that way. Just saying like, you know, these things, but you don't believe that you do. And so because you don't believe that you do, you think your only hope is to rap and play ball. And so like, mm. that's how the songs kind of play together like that. Yeah, man, that that's, that's beautiful, man. Um, Thank but you. yeah, uh, going into my daughter's favorite song, uh, "We Culture." <laughs> yes, we the real rock stars. <laughs> yes, sir, from Kanye himself. Um, so, with that song, kind of really made me think about you know, like uh, rock. You know, rock was us. Now it's yeah. not. You know, um, mm-hmm. jazz was us. Now it's you know, it's kind of like questionable if it's still mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. You know, hip hop is us, but we see, you know, other cultures bringing it in and everything. Um, so within that mindset of we culture, like um, how do we make sure that, you know, like some of the, the things that we originate still remain true to its essence and remains us. And it, it rem- like, you know, like 20, 30 years from now, 40 years mm-hmm. from now, you're not having black kids scratching their head like black folks made hip like hip hop was black like you know what i'm saying like and that's what's going on with rock and, and jazz like black folks don't don't rock and roll for white you know what i mean like that's the mindset yes. because you know the, the culture's been taken out of it so how do we kind of you know make sure that we 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 maintain that and we understand that 30 40 years from now our kids kids understand like yo this this is us like this is this is where it came from the south bronx cool hurt African yeah. culture, like all of that, like how do we maintain that and not have it stripped away 30, 40 years from now? Yeah, man, that's an excellent question. I think one of the first ways we do is we got to keep telling the story. We have to continue reminding ourselves of this is our culture. It's a part of the family tree of, of African culture and musical transmissions. Like this is what we've been doing for thousands of years. This is us, it's who we are. So I think we start there. And then two, we got to keep doing it too. Um, so many of these other art forms, there have been times where it's like it's not the music du jour. And so we start looking at what's something else that we can do instead or or just kind of say, oh, that's what we used to do. That's old. And I think we have to always maintain a love for the culture and preserve it. And then lastly, I mean, I hate to say it in this way, but I think we have to not necessarily gatekeep, but we do need to be just more mindful of preserving the culture, particularly when it gets in the hands of other people. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I have no issue with other people, groups and other cultures wanting to be a part of what 
Africans created in America. But I think that when you do, you have to acknowledge that this is where it came from. I think you need to be respectful of the culture and its participants. I think you need to also do it in a way that's authentic to you and authentic to the culture simultaneously. And so there are some people who really get it and do that and do that well. I mean, like Mac Miller is a great example of that, right? So like he comes in doing frat boy rapping and just like, you know, like I'm good and brash and entitled and arrogant. And then, but he loved the culture and he immersed himself in it and perfected his craft to, at the time in which he gets to swimming pools, he's one of the most beloved artists within the genre um, and as a, was a fixture within the culture. And so like, I, there are so many examples of people who do it well. And so I'm not saying that we need to necessarily exclude other people from it, but just make sure that when we bring other people in or who, when we put our arm around someone and say like, this person's got it, that it's not just because they shake their leg real good and clap on a two and four and can like rap on beat a little bit, but like you got to do a little bit more than that. All right. So let's, let's just say I'm like an inspiring artist and, you know, everything's blowing up for me. Social media is going crazy and <laughs> I'm doing real well. And I get a call from Miley Cyrus like yes. to feature a song. Am I hurting the culture by bringing somebody in that does not care for the culture? If so I want to, if my ultimate goal is to make it as an artist, mm-hmm. like, you know, should I just look at that as like, yo, I'm just trying to make it as an artist. Like, am I really responsible for making sure, you know, I'm, I'm you know, staying true to the culture and, you know, Miley Cyrus is famous. People know her name. So let me mm-hmm. get her on. Like, am I hurting the culture by having her on? So my first question to that artist is going crazy on social media is if Miley Cyrus reached out to you, why do you need her? She's demonstrated that she needs you. Do you need her? So if, you're, if your goal is to ultimately make it, the fact that someone of her stature is reaching out to you indicates that you're on the right path. You've gotten her attention you're likely are building an audience and a fan base. And I would encourage you to continue doing that. Um, The second thing I would say is Maya Angelou once said, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. And Mm. so Miley Cyrus is someone who's demonstrated how she is willing to leverage her whiteness and her, her whiteness and simultaneous proximity to blackness to her advantage. So when it's politically expedient for her to align herself with Black artists and Black culture, she'll do that and do it in sometimes the most grotesque ways for her benefit. But then when it no longer benefits, she'll throw those things to the wayside, disparage it, and act like it was some of the worst things that ever happened to her. We've seen her do this in real time. Mm -hmm. And then when her career flounders with her trying to reclaim some of the sanctity of this image of her white womanhood, then she kind of runs back to us and tries to start doing things again. And it's like, she has demonstrated that she's a culture vulture. So I would advise someone who were to ask me not to work with Miley Cyrus because she is using artists and and our culture and its popularity for her own benefit and then throwing it to the wayside when it no longer benefits her. And so that's not to say don't work with any white artists that reach out to you. I'd say like be selective about anyone. It's not just Miley, but anyone who reaches out to you. And again, like if they're reaching out to you you're doing something right because they've demonstrated that they need you, especially Miley right now. If she's reaching out to you right now, then she's saying that, hey, like your career is hot. Mine is not. Um, <laughs> what can we do to get mine simmering again? That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So no Miley Cyrus. I'm blowing up. 
now a record company hits me up. Mm. They want me to sign a deal. And we talking millions. They're giving me upfront money. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've been an independent artist for a while, like independent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being an independent artist is becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you mentioned Toby Nwegwe and yes. he's independent. Yes, um, he is. Chance the Rapper. And a lot of people that we think about now that are mainstream are independent. Um, so should I be going for that record deal? And if, if I should be like, what does a good record deal even look like? Or should I be just going through the phases of being independent and hoping for the best? That's a great question. So every artist has to make a decision that works best for them. And everyone has to determine what level of commitment that they're willing to put in to advance their career. On its face, anybody who's coming to you to align themselves with you, you need to learn, you need to ask yourself, does the benefit outweigh the cost? And so with a label, you say they're talking about millions of dollars, some of that's upfront money. What you have to realize is that that's a loan. And it's a loan that you have to, to that you have to pay back in complicated ways. And so you need to look at this money that they're giving me. How do how do I have to pay it back? How soon do they get to own the entirety of the product that I create? For how long do they also get revenue from the other things that I do as well? That's what these 360 deals are doing now. So if I if I'm if I'm in a movie, if I'm doing a commercial, if I'm doing shows, if I do merchandise, do they get some of that? So you want to ask yourself questions like that. And so someone like Toby Nwigway, uh, Fat Nell, or someone like Chance the Rapper has demonstrated that if you're able to formulate a small team, if you're able to work hard and move strategically, you don't need a label. There's nothing a label can do for Toby Nwigway right now. Mm-hmm. He can pretty much be on any platform that he wants to. He's in movies now. He's on television ads. He's done ads for the NBA. He's in the Transformers movie. He sells out. Uh, shows anytime he does uh, anytime he goes on tour he sells out every venue sometimes he's got to go twice he sells out anytime he drops merch there's nothing a label can do for him at this point he works with anybody he wants to chance the rappers got has has grammy awards He, he can he can work with anybody he wants to as well he sells out arenas he's a household name ain't nothing a label can do for him right now but conversely what you have to think about too, and Wendy Day talks about this a lot. If you're the type of artist that just wants to be plugged into the machine and just want to make art and not have to think about anything else, then maybe that's for you. And like, maybe it can work out like Alicia Keys or Rihanna, for example, like, you know, they just wanted to make music and plugging into a label got them the resources and the avenue and um, the push to become household names, to become icons. For someone like Alicia Keys, she just got out of her album deal with her label, Columbia, with this last album she just put out, Keys. Wow. So you're looking at a 20-year career. It took her 20 years to do that. So I say all of that to say, if, if you're an artist, if you're independent, and a label comes at you throwing money at you, I think you need to pause and think about, one, you're doing something well. You've gotten a corporation's attention. Then you have to think about what's best for you. You also need to um, make sure that you have a lawyer review your contract and review it thoroughly. Make sure that you understand what they're saying to you. And they also understand what your leverage is at this point too. Fonte talks about this too, because like all the best legal advice in the world don't mean nothing if you don't have leverage, right? So like if you are a starving artist and you're trying to make it and a label throws more money at you than you've ever seen before, that might it might be advantageous for you to take it because you don't have leverage. 
But if you have built leverage to the point that you're like someone like Toby or Chance, then you can tell Naples, nah, thank you for the meeting though. I appreciate it. Mm. So I think that's kind of how you got to look at it. Great points, great points, man. And um, speaking of that, I know part of the work that you do too on the lawyer and um, fighting for intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, we were talking about NWA before, when you look Mm -hmm. at Straight Outta Compton, the movie, you know, um, Ice Cube was struggling with his intellectual property. Yes, he was. And Dre and them and the deal that they made before, they were just hyped to just get signed. And the the label was just, you know, literally stealing money from them, like, you know, for their for their property that they were putting out. Like they weren't getting that. And we've seen that a lot in the past. I, I think yes. a lot more artists are hip to it now. Um, but can you talk about what exactly intellectual property is? And then um, what does it mean to have your own masters? This is one of the things that oh, we yeah, see yeah. too with mm-hmm. uh, artists now like fighting to get their masters because they didn't really understand what it meant, you know, at that point in time. But like you just mentioned with Alicia Keys 20 years later, that now that you have your, your property, you understand the importance of it. But can you talk about those two things, like your master's and then intellectual sure. property? Sure. So intellectual property basically is the right to own anything that you create with your ideas. And oftentimes that is protected via what's called a copyright. People often misconstrue what a copyright is. They think it's copyright like W-R-I-T-E, like you write the right, but it's copyright R-I-G-H-T. It's the right to copy. So a copyright protects the right to to, um, control and profit from any copy that's made. So in music, if if music is a little more complicated because music often has two copyrights. There's there's one called the performing arts copyright and there's one called the sound recording copyright. So you're an artist, you go, you, you record a song, it becomes a hit, you have two, copyrights for that you have the performing arts that's just the lyrics and like this the um the annotation of the music so like um so if you were to turn the music into sheet music so someone else would come and literally replay it you own the right to that and the actual recording itself is called the sound recording so if somebody so now like you make a song as a hit right if somebody wants to sample that you own the right, unless you have contracted it away or given it away, you own the right to control how that's copied. So that means public performance. That means no one can perform it publicly without your permission or at least compensating you for it. That means creating derivative works. So if somebody wants to sample your work, what they can do is that, so like if they're taking the actual audio recording, you need permission from the copyright holder of both. Whoever owns a sound recording, and whoever so I can't, owns- I can't listen to um, Timothy Welbeck and we culture and take some of that and re- remix it and change the sound a little bit and throw in a hook in there and then throw in my piece and call it mine. You shouldn't. Um, it's- <laughs> <laughs> the culture is a little complicated because like I actually do have a sample in there. So the, the music comes from an Ebo Taylor song. I actually had to reach out to the label and like uh-huh. and talk so I reach, So oftentimes if an artist signs with a label, usually the label owns both copyrights. And so I had to reach out to the label and come to a deal um, and stuff like that. And so talk to them about all of that. And um, but I said that to say, so when someone says they own their masters, so that comes to the master recording mm-hmm. of a of a work. So like so let's say. Um, Let's, so let's say rap and ball because it doesn't have a sample. So it's a little easier. So like 
I own the masters of that um, in part because I never contracted it away. I never sold it or whatever. Um, and so if somebody wants to make, somebody wants to sample that and make a new song from it, they got to come to me and we got to work into an agreement with it. And then um, I should get a percentage of whatever you make from that. And we can negotiate what that percentage is. I can even ask for an upfront fee too. But the master recording gives you the right to negotiate that. It also gives you the right to control the royalties and the recreation of that in the future. So when, when the artist says, I own my masters, that means they control the rights to the master recording of whatever project that they're talking about. And so now anytime that's played, anytime somebody wants to sample it, anytime it's earning money, they control that those streams of revenue. And so it's a revolutionary thing for artists because the music industry in, in a lot of ways is like a Ponzi scheme in that like, mm. it's a Ponzi scheme where like Russ will say, it's like banks with really bad interest rates. And so like what happened is this record label will come to you and say, we'll give you the money to create this piece of art. We'll pay money to promote this piece of art. And in exchange for that, we will own this piece of art for as long as it exists. And all the money that comes in from this piece of art, we get, and we'll give you a very small percentage of it after you pay us back functionally with interest. Mm. And so if you're an artist like Jay-Z or Alicia Keys and you get to the point where you, or LL Cool J, um, where you get to the point where the, you can convince a label to give your masters back. Basically what the label is saying is that you have made us so much money um, that will negotiate with you to give you now control of this piece of art. So now you control if somebody wants to put it in a movie, somebody wants to put it in a commercial, somebody wants to sample it. Every time it plays on the radio, those are different revenue streams. Now you control that and you get the bulk of that. So it really comes down to ownership. And that's why so many artists now are, are trying to stay independent because so much of this is easier to do than it was in the past. You can um, get things out to the public in ways that you couldn't really do previously. So, I mean, that's a short end of it. Yeah, um, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. And um, as far as like the labels control too, I think about, you know, one of my favorite albums, um, Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm listening to some of these artists, man, like, Two chains and like yo, this is, <laughs> like what they're talking about. Like this is kind of dope. Like what they're talking about. I'm not really used to hearing them speaking that way. Mm -hmm. And um, it made me think about like, is it the label that's really um, pressing them to have a certain sound, like for them to produce that type of uh, music that they produce, or um, did they make that? This is like a lot of these artists are super intelligent, and obviously you have to be intelligent to be able to rhyme and do certain things, but just the way I heard some of the artists in that album. And I was like, wow, like kind of blew me away. Um, some of the things that they were talking about, like consciously, you know, in, in, in that album. And I was like, wow, like, why don't they rap yeah. like that regularly? Like, is it the label that's, that's pressing them to, to produce a certain sound? That's a good question. Um, so it really depends. So it's not like people, imagine where like the label heads are sitting in a dark room and they call you in and there's a, like a fog machine and they say like you must talk about this 
but more so what the label is will say to an artist is we control the purse string so we want sometimes final say on what gets put out so like what's your single who you're working with what producers you're working with and so the conflict comes like these these record execs they don't know nothing about making music a lot of them they've never made a hit song a lot of them and so what they're looking at sometimes is just facts and figures. They'll say, well, this trend is hot or this producer is hot. So we want you to do this. So like that's that's part of what got Lupe, Lupe um, arguing with the label. Uh, Atlanta, I remember that, yeah. With, with lasers because Lupe basically had lasers done, but the label couldn't agree on what the single would be. And so... It got to, and sometimes they didn't like what he was doing with B. So, like, um, for example, BOB is nothing on you. Lupe had that first. The label didn't like what he did with it. So they let BOB put it out and it becomes a hit for BOB. And then Lupe was like, I had that beat first, though. And like now it became a hit. I knew it could be a hit. And so when you talk about label control, it really comes down to them saying, we will not support this song or, or will not support this iteration of it. Another really famous example of that is The Roots, You Got Me. Mm. So Jill Scott wrote the part that Erica Badu sings and on the original wow. version of it, she's singing the part that Erica Badu sings. Mm. But at the point in time that the, the Roots put that song in front of the label and said, we want this to be the lead single, the label's like, we like the song but Erica Badu at that point was a bigger name. Jill Scott didn't have her record deal yet. Her first album wasn't out yet. So Jill Scott, she's a local Philly singer at this time. And Erica Badu has her first album that did really well. So the label tells The Roots, if you want us to promote the song, you need to put Erica Badu where Jill Scott is. Mm. Obviously they did that because that's how we heard the song. And so sometimes it puts artists in a bit of a conundrum because like the label saying, we won't promote this song unless you do it this way. And so like, and that's where artists sometimes get into these dilemmas because Zen like, because the label is now trying to control like how something gets put out or sometimes even like labels are delaying when something gets put out too. And there's some artists who've even talked about how like they felt like their careers had been stalled because they lost momentum. Like, you know, they're bubbling, they're starting to do right. really well and the label won't put out like their um, product when they believe it's most advantageous. And so that that's that's sense. the other thing with labels. You sign with a label, you lose a lot of that control. Yeah, that makes sense, man. That makes sense. All right, I kind of wanted to dive back into you uh, with a quick little activity called What's okay. Your Favorite? Um, I okay. can find a few of your favorite things so you can elaborate or you can yes. get a short short and sweet if you want okay um, do my best <laughs> yes sir so favorite artists of all time Ooh, my favorite artist mentioned like top five we, you know if you want to do more whatever but some of your favorite you know all-time all folks my favorite artist some of my favorite artists all time stevie wonder lauren hill mm. um those two like immediately come to mind john coltrane um Sade, like those are like some of my my favorite like all time artists. Like I'm like regularly listening to them. Hip hop artists all time, probably like uh, again Lauren, Andre, Yasin Bay. Um, 
those are like my favorites all time. My favorites right now are Toby and Weekway, uh, Show Baraka, Propaganda, Odyssey, Miami and Youssef, Rhapsody, Black Thought. Got you. Those are some dope artists right there. <coughs> what about favorite uh, favorite albums? Ooh, that's hard. <laughs> um, Songs in the Key of Life, Miseducation of Lauren Hill, mm. Kind of Blue, AT Aliens. Mm. I like water for chocolate. Those are probably like um, some of my oh, and um, the Black Star album. Like those are probably like some of my favorite. Like immediately come to mind. Like some of my favorite albums of all time. Got you. Uh, favorite collaboration you've done? Oh wow. Um, oh, that's hard. So. So two come to mind immediately. So like, so Tamika Carroll is one of my closest friends and like one of my most frequent collaborators. I joke with her, like she's on some of my best songs. So she's on um, If the Sense Were Common. She's on Have Plenty, Life is Beautiful. Mm. She's on The More Things Change. She's on And Get a Little More. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So she, um, so all of those songs are some of my favorite songs. Um, I really like Southern Comfort. I did that with Lisa McClendon um, that came together really well. Um, Eyes Wide Shut is on my very first album. It's with my friends, The Remnant. I think that was one of my, I think that is my first collaboration uh, on recording. And so like, I really like that one too. Um, we culture came together really well too, like Nancy did her thing. It's it's hard to pick she, one. She killed it, man. Oh my god, like, <laughs> yeah, Nancy's great, man. Um, so I tell the story of why I asked her to be on it, and uh, I did a little video explanation of the lyrics. Um, but the short end of it is, um, I saw Nancy. She did a '90s theme cipher at Texas Tech like four or five years ago, and it went viral. I saw it on Twitter and started following her, and we started following each other shortly thereafter. And when I started working on this album, I wanted to, her to be on one of the songs because she often talks about her Nigerian heritage and being born in America, but having Nigerian parents and stuff like that. So I was going to ask her to be on a place to call home because I talk about similar experiences myself. And then she did this Africa Day cipher and her verse was like perfect for reculture. I was like, I, I, like, I like the verse so much. I even reached out to her and said, I don't know if you recycle verses, but if you were like, one, would you be willing to work with me? And mm-hmm. two, if you are willing to work with me, I'm even open to you like using that verse. And she's like, no, nah, I got you. I'll write a new verse. And she wrote a new verse in the fire. Yeah, that's dope, man. Um, what about like a future collaboration? What do you think would be a favorite? Mm-hmm. Like if you could have anybody come through and, um, you know, oh. spit something with you, who would it be? I got a short list. Um, so anybody, um, Black Thought, Yasin Bay, Common, those be and Lauren, absolutely like Lauren at Lauren, Lauren, yes. Uh, Andre and Nas, like, like talk about all time people, like, yep. yeah, Andre, Lauren, Nas, Common, Black Thought, Yasin Bey, um, any and all of them, if, if something ever works out with them, like, I could call it a career with, with, with having worked with them. Um, others, um, Toby Nwigway, I love what the him, Nell, and Fat are doing. Um, obviously, I'd love to work with him. Um, Rhapsody, Mayamina Youssef, would love to work with them as well. Um, 
it's a few people here. There's a few people here and there, um, but like those are the ones that like jump out at me. Like, oh, Sky's mm-hmm. too. Like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's something that we could do too. Like, we have very similar tastes. Like right. every time Sky's puts out something, I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> he, he hasn't. His his discography is immaculate, and so um, so yeah, like. That's a long list of talented artists right there, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I know I was supposed to just pick one, but <laughs> oh like, no, no, definitely like those, <laughs> those, those, and listeners, if you don't know who those people are, man, do yourself a favor and yes, YouTube, look it up. <laughs> yeah, enjoy. any of that. I mean, if you are a lover of hip hop, just lover of the culture, the music, the sound, and and want something substantive, like all of those people are incredible. Um, Sky Zoo, Show Baraka, Rhapsody, uh, Propaganda, Toby in the Wigway, Odyssey, uh, Mumu Fresh. Um, her real name is Mayamina Youssef. Like, yes. like current people. And then, like I said, my all time, they're all timers for a reason. So, indeed, indeed. Um, I know you've done uh, quite a few inter- interviews as well. Like, um, do you have a favorite interview that you look back on? Mm. Favorite is hard. But um, the Wyclef one was really important because Wyclef at the time was the biggest artist I had ever interviewed. And it was just such a monumental moment. And for him, it was it was big for me personally because the Fuji's has such a huge impression on me as a young listener and as an artist. And just to be able to meet him and have him in class, that one really stands out. Um, my interview with Lecrae was excellent, too. Um, that was my first time meeting him. We have a lot of we had a lot of mutual friends beforehand, so like it was only a matter of time before we met. But um, Lecrae was just um, he 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 was just extraordinary in that he was just really gracious with his time. He was really approachable and down to earth, and uh, in that way, it was just it was a great experience too. And it was at a pivotal point in his career too because he was still figuring out just who he was as an artist entering into the mainstream and he was just really open to answering a lot of questions um, as it related to that so those two like immediately jump out as some of my my favorites got it got it um what about like a favorite lesson that one of your students has taught you oh that my students have taught me that um Anytime you invest in a person, it always yields a great return. And sometimes you don't see the return, but um, it's almost always worth it. Um, One of my favorite quotes about teaching is to teach is to learn twice. Mm. And I just feel like I learned so much from my students um, too. And then many of my students have also just taught me the value of perseverance. Every semester I have a student encountering some type of life-altering, extenuating circumstance and just finds a way to persevere through it all. And that that inspires me all the time. I mean, I've had students, I had a student lose a spouse in the middle of the semester. I had a student lose her mother in the, stu- in the middle of the semester. I've had students mm-hmm. and, and tragic car accidents and students battling chronic illnesses, um, students who've had sick children. And somebody, I had a student who moved to the United States and had just learned English two years before she took my class. And like, these are students like who like push themselves. Sometimes we're getting the best grades uh, in, in their class. And so just 
their perseverance was remarkable and inspires me. Got it. Got it. All right. What has been a favorite person in history that kind of fought against racism? I have a, I, I have a few. It's hard to pick one. Um, uh, I'm a huge admirer of, of Malcolm X, um, Frederick Douglass as well, um, Ida B. Wells, Barnett, Harriet Tubman, um, Dr. King. If I had to pick five right now, I'd probably pick those. Got you, got you. Um, favorite books, favorite books. Man, you're asking some hard questions. <laughs> um, one of my favorite novels ever, I actually just read for the first time last year, is Octavia Butler's Kindred. Oh, that's a classic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, I, I was really late to the party on that. Um, Malcolm X's autobiography, the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, um, that was a life-changing read for me. Um, narrative in the life of Frederick Douglass was also excellent. Um, Marshall Frady's um, biography of Dr. King is my favorite biography. Um, that's, that is not an autobiography. Um, and yeah, those are all, you know, classics right there, man. And definitely life changes right there too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, so favorite biography is Marshall Frady's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. A Life. My favorite autobiographies are Narrative in the Life of Fred- Frederick Douglass and the Autobiography of Malcolm X. My favorite novel is um is is kindred by octavia mm-hmm. butler um i also really liked david edgar's what is the what that was that. that's a really good book uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that and the souls of black folks was also a life-changing read for me as well mm. so yeah so Definitely some classics right there, man. Um, and then lastly, of course, what's been your favorite part of being a father? The fatherhood is one of the foremost blessings of life and just the ability to shape and mold the lives of your children is, 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 is you can't compare anything to it. And just, it's a joy to parent my children and just to spend time with them. And so it's, it's hard to pinpoint a particular moment, but just to be entrusted with that responsibility to steward lives and to shape and mold them, to provide and protect them. Um, it's, it's an honor, it's life-changing, it's life-giving, it's rewarding, it's fulfilling. Um, you know, you got, you got children yourself, so you understand. Yes, sir. But, so it's, like I say, it's one of the foremost blessings of, in, in life. I mean, like, um, so I, I'm just, I'm grateful to, to be a father. I, I consider it to be my most important role. Mm, mm, Husband, father, those are my most important roles. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, man. Speaking of that, looking at a uh, legacy, man, you're like, you know, you're doing, you're an author, you know, you're an artist, you're teaching, and then um, you practice law. So that's all type of different legacies into one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so looking at legacy down the road, man, and, um, you know, when people think about Timothy Welbeck, like, what do you want them to know and understand about the person that you were and, um, you know, all of these different hats that you wore and what you embodied, you know? 
That's, that's also a good question. So Timothy means honoring God. And so that's like the, the, the mantra of my life. And so my hope and prayer is that those who encounter my life's work are able to say to Timothy, honor God with his life, his time, his talents, his gifts, and his treasures. Uh, I want people to say that Timothy worked to make the world a better place um, than the way he found it. And that in all the various, and I, I also would just hope that people would say that the various gifts and talents and skills that he had, he used them to their fullest for that purpose. And so I want to die empty, so to speak. And mm. when I leave here to have left it all, left it all here. And so, and hopefully those who come behind me have a better start than what I had. Yeah, man. Um, I definitely see that happening right now. So I definitely can see that. Um, can you leave us? You've given us so much today, man. I appreciate the time and the gems. Definitely. Can you give us one more gem and leave us with your favorite quote and what it means to you? Wow. So I don't have a favorite quote. There are too many to name. <laughs> um, if I guess based on what I just said about my legacy, I, in terms of a gem I'll leave you with is the chorus of my song, Original Intent. Uh, you only live once and they bury you deep. That means you've got one purpose to carry and keep. When it's all said and done, you and your maker will meet. You should be the one that God made you to be. And so mm. that's the hook of original intent. And so basically live the life that God designed for you to live. Live it fully and authentically, unapologetically. There's only one of you. You are one of one in all of history. There will never be another you. There was never another you. And so you honor your creator by being who your creator made you to be and work towards living in such a way that honors that. So that's my gem. Um, I don't have a favorite quote. Like I said, I have to- It is right there. That that was powerful (laughs) right there, man. So we will take that. And that was was great, man. Definitely left me with something to think about. Um, So we appreciate the time again, man. And I know people are listening to that might want to reach out or ask you a few questions or- you know, whatever else. So where can people find you? Uh, so I have a website. My website is just my name, timothywellbeck.com is the home of all of my work. So you can read my bio, learn about my, my, my speaking, my writing, my teaching. You can learn about my law practice. You can actually read some of the things I wrote there. You can see my music. You can also see my videos there as well. You can also see how to contact me. So Timothy Welbeck with one L W E L B E C K. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. It's just my name, Timothy Welbeck on both platforms. I also have a Facebook page. I'm not active on Facebook. I need to be, uh, <laughs> but I'm not as active on Facebook, but I am pretty regularly on Instagram and Twitter. Like I said, it's just my name. My website is is also the home of everything. So most of what you would want to find for me is there. There it is. There it is. Uh, again, thank you so much for the the gems today, for your time. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, I feel inspired right now. So hopefully listeners have learned and are inspired as well. Um, and I definitely have a feeling that there will definitely be a part two of this conversation because you're involved in so much. Got a book coming out. I, do. So I can't wait for that. 
Do you have a release date for that yet? We don't have a release date. I'm really behind schedule writing it, but I'm actively working to get it out. My hope is to have a release date um, within the next few months. But the book is called No City for Young Men, Hip Hop and the Narrative of Marginalization. And it talks about how hip hop communicates the lived experiences of people living across urban America. Talk about the policies that led to the creation of urban America and how a lot of those policy failures impacted the people living there and how hip hop chronicles and critiques that. So um, mm. the, the, the book was inspired by the album of the same name, which is currently on all streaming platforms. Uh, many of the chapters in the book are basically expositions of what I say in rap form. So just distilling those out into chapters. And then I teach a class of the same name at Temple University. So we kind of like go through some of those things there also. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to read it. And then we'll have you back and look at, you know, dissect that book. Definitely. Absolutely. I'll be happy to come back. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, so listeners, uh, we will get Timothy Welbeck back again for round two. Uh, so uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Um, you know, feel free to contact Timothy Welbeck for whatever, um, you know, he responds to email. So that's good to know. <laughs> um, yes, sir. And again, guys, uh, remember, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind. But we culture, mm. rap the new rock and roll. Mm. Mm. We culture, rap is the new rock and roll. We the rock stars. We culture, we the real rock stars. You take what we make and try to say it's not ours. We culture, who we are is ours. You can imitate, but when it's in our heart, it's culture. We the real rock stars, you take what we make and try to say it's not ours, we culture. Who we are is ours, you can imitate, but what is in our hearts, you love our culture, hate our people. Doubles vulgar, imitate what we do. Lunch on our derbs against the thing that feeds you. Grinning and sinning while we give you the things you feast. Do we talk drums to talk, hummed in walls, sung without pause, even when hung in mall. The change you gave couldn't constrain our songs. And when we sang our song, the world sang along. So you see these things on TV screens, your children perceive these things, believe in we. We see somewhere in America mildly turkey. Under that mascara, Kylie wanna be a black person. Puckering their lips, shuddering their hips, lining their purses till it suits their purpose. Being black adjacent might. Take you places, you can imitate it, you can't duplicate it. We, we culture, we the real rock stars. You take what we make and try to say it's not ours. We culture, who we are is ours, you can imitate, but what is in our heart is culture. We the real rock stars. You take what we make and try to say it's not ours. We culture, who we are is ours, you can imitate, but what is in our heart is. I said we want water, all the men equal. This our story, I see through y'all sequel. You build walls and seats on our steeple. Still we flower the world with our sequel. Power to the people, knowledge to the feeble. See our stars and scars with some diesel. Paint a picture, grab an easel. We the life source, you the fecal fall. We are, and it's pretty bizarre how they still being all by the new black czars. Kings and queens and finer things. Little kids in the hood that can rhyme and sing, they take it. But they don't do it too well. Then they try to dip sets from the real jewels, our bodies. Where they used to throw stones, now they in the gym trying to keep up with the jams. We the real rock stars, you take what we make and try to say it's not ours, we culture. Who we are is ours, you can imitate, but what is in our heart is culture. We the real rock stars, you take what we make and try to say it's not ours, we culture. 
we are is art you can imitate. Don't act like a show of fineness, prime's approval. But like with the bro, Yannis, I'm the Kumpa. We're known as the freaking. Every like a palm we do. Go Roman outcast of Antoine and Andre Duno. No, you can't go with bronze or the rock the skin tone. You can wash off that tan and still harm my kin. Folk, if you ponder replay, know who calls the temple of the artist and the art. It can all be so simple. You can't have our rhythm without our blues. That's what all of this is amounting to. If you don't move your feet, then we don't eat with three speeches. True, but the only feet is you move your feet is the wrong movement that you choose. We think a thing or two when you proceed to sing our tunes. See the people too. When they sweep you out your shoes and when no sips are swaying Whenever you play it, no, you can imitate it You can't duplicate it, we... Since we met you poor 500 years ago, look at us We've given everything, you are still taking it's true. I mean, where would the whole Western world be without be without Africa, our cocoa, our timber, our gold, our diamonds, our platinum?